We're reading from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. And as Keith said at the beginning, for people who weren't yet online, this was written in about 531 BC. God's people were still in captivity down in Babylon, awaiting their Messiah. The Jews today still wait for their Messiah. But we who are Messianic believers in the Lord Jesus know that he's come the first time. We wait for his return. Starting at verse 9 of chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. Our king will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, O prisoners of hope. Even now, I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. I will bend Judah as I bend my bow and fill it with Ephraim. I will rouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and make you like a warrior's sword. This is the word of the Lord. I'm just going to pray again, if that's all right. <laughs> yeah, God, we thank you for this incredible passage. And again, Lord, we just pray that you would speak afresh your word. Open our hearts, Lord, to you. Amen. So um, since the summer, we've been looking at the story of 1 Samuel, and last week we arrived at the discovery of this boy, David, who would become king of Israel, who would be the king they always wanted, who would usher in the start of the golden age. And, and Sometimes I think we forget, you know, when we see God's anointing on, on King David and King Solomon and um, we see kind of the blessing on them, we sometimes forget that actually that wasn't God's best. It wasn't God's plan for them. God wanted to be Israel's king. And eventually these kind of second-rate human kings let Israel down time after time until eventually, as Richard said, the kingdom is divided. They get taken off into captivity, into exile. And then many years later, the people are released back into the land. And so that's where we are now. The, the people um, are kind of returning to the land in dribs and drabs. Zechariah is sitting with them in the rubble of the temple, and the people are disillusioned. And so the mission of this prophet, Zechariah, is to envision a broken people, a people near death socially and culturally. In fact, he describes them as being in a waterless pit in verse 11. And this image of a waterless pit is essentially a prison. 
So you may remember Joseph gets thrown into a waterless pit. Um, Jeremiah gets thrown into a cistern or lowered into a cistern. And there were basically pits for gathering rainwater scattered about the land. And because they were so prevalent through the land, they were perfect for if you wanted to imprison someone and you didn't want them to get out unless they had intervention. So there was no way of escaping from these pits. So Zechariah is saying, without a rescuer... You are helpless prisoners with no hope, no way out, and yet, he says, you will be called prisoners of hope. Why? Because there is one who is coming to free you from the waterless pit. And not only free you, but restore to you twice as much as what you had in the beginning. He will restore peace. Not just to Israel, but to the nations. It says he will rule from sea to sea, in verse 10, and to the ends of the earth. Who is this one? It says in verse 9, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious. And this is a vision of a king not just coming to wage war, because actually this king is already victorious. He's not coming into the city like the other kings. He's not riding on a military animal. He's not ready for battle. In fact, in this passage, he's doing what the princes of that day would do in times of peace. He's riding through the city on a domestic animal, on a donkey. And it says all the weapons and the chariots and the war horses are removed from Jerusalem in verse 10. Instead of military might... His weapons are his people. It says in verse 13, I will bend Judah as my bow and fill it with Ephraim. That is, his people are to partner with their king in a restoration plan of cosmic proportions. Therefore, says Zechariah, return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. So what I want us to think about this morning is what does it mean for us to be prisoners of hope? And I think what the passage suggests um, is two things, or at least there are two things that I want to draw out. Firstly, see your king. For the people of Israel, there was hope in the future. They were looking forward to their coming Messiah. And for us, our, our hope is a present and a future hope. It says in Revelation, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. And so that's the first thing I want us to think about. See your king and what does that mean? And then the second thing is join your king. Zechariah was calling the people to be a people of restoration. And likewise, we are called to participate in the restoration plan of cosmic proportions from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. So firstly, see your king. This prophecy we're looking at this morning is given to a people who are in many ways still prisoners. They have been released from exile from Babylon, and yet they remain a vassal state under the power of Persia, under King Cyrus, And in many cases, the returned exiles are still living under the influence of Babylon. They're still kind of having that mindset of of being prisoners. They've been living there for like 70 years, 
or more, and they've been accustomed to living in captivity. And many of them who have returned don't even know what Israel was like beforehand. Like, they don't have living memory of Israel before captivity. And I think that's a powerful message for us, isn't it? Isn't it a powerful prophetic image of our own situation? We live in a world still governed by the God of this age, by Satan's rule. And even though I imagine most of us here have committed to becoming citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the temptation is to remain, in every other sense, captives to the wrong kingdom, to still live lives as though we were in captivity. So for me, this is kind of a little joke I play with myself sometimes, but there is a kind of element of seriousness to it. So sometimes I do this thing where I go, and it's when I'm kind of comparing my life to other people, or maybe I'm looking on social media, and um, I kind of lose sight of my king, and I begin to think those other kings look a lot more tangible and a lot more pleasing, and maybe I'm missing out. And I say to myself, if I wasn't a Christian, I would do dot, 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 or I would be dot, dot, dot. Does anyone relate to that? Is it just me? Um, so, for example, if I go back, I was at secondary school, and I used to say, if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't deliberately make friends with the geeks. <laughs> I wouldn't make friends with the bullied ones, the ones who were left out and had no friends. I would ignore them like everyone else, and I would be friends with the popular kids. I mean, I probably wouldn't because I wasn't that cool, but, you know, I'd try. <laughs> and, um, you know, because when you're a teenager, the social status is important, isn't it? Maybe not just when you're a teenager. When I was at ballet school... Uh, a bunch of us were renting a house together in London, and I was completely broke. But my friends were really well off because they were working in the clubs at night using their dancing skills in other ways. And they made a huge amount of money. Like, they had new cars. They were living it up in London. They were going out shopping in the high streets. And if money and popularity and that sort of status was important to me, if that had been my king at that time, I would have been missing out. My slightly more humorous one, which was a game, kind of, um, which I used to play with my mum. And it was like, we used to really like those movies, like Ocean's Eleven and, um, and uh, what's that one with Catherine Zeta-Jones and um, some, someone else? Um, and um, what's the one with the minis? The Italian Job. We used to say, oh, if we weren't Christians, we would be excellent jewel thieves. <laughs> like, we would be brilliant at robbing banks. <laughs> um, and and we just sort of love the endings of those movies when they go off and they buy an island and they live and, you know, have a whole island to themselves in the sun and it's very nice. <laughs> That's a bit more humorous. So for me, there are two obvious kind of kings that I need to watch out for, money and popularity probably and those are the things in big and small ways that I need to keep under check that I need to keep under the authority of King Jesus and those might be different for each of us and perhaps you might want to give some serious thought to you know what are those those things in your life that in big and small ways do tempt you to or maybe make you think I'm missing out if I wasn't a Christian Ephesians 2 says this you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. 
It goes on to say, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were in a waterless pit. It is by grace we have been saved And then it goes on, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness of Jesus Christ. So see your king. Or as the great hymn puts it, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's a daily discipline. And the ways we do this, very simply, is through prayer and worship. Worship is powerful. Worship isn't just a thing we do on a Sunday morning, right? It's what we're commanded to do. And this passage starts with these words. It says, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout Daughter, Jerusalem, see your king comes to you. Are we spending every day, at least a moment every day, fixing our eyes on King Jesus, turning our eyes to him, worshipping him, praying to him? It's a daily discipline. So that's the first thing we're called to do as prisoners of hope. See your king. And secondly, what these um, people, what the readers of this passage are called to do is be participators in the restoration plan. Um, I wonder if anyone else enjoys restoration projects on TV. Um, Things like, um, there could be anything actually, I love them, kind of uh, restoring people's homes that are really cluttered, like getting all the rubbish out, or doing a makeover of a garden. Aren't they great? Um, One that actually Tim and his family introduced me to was Your Home Made Perfect. Has anyone seen that? It's on BBC. I recommend it if you've got, you know, time to kill. Um, (laughs) It's called Your Home Made Perfect, BBC. And the premise of each episode is that there are two architects who are competing to win a contract with um, these homeowners. And so what they do is they both go into the homes, they they look around and survey it and um, spend weeks, I'm sure, designing it. Then they come to the clients and what they do is they meet in a big warehouse and they all put virtual reality headsets on. And then they go, right to the clients, let's see your house. And it goes in front of their eyes in virtual reality, like just as their house is. And they're like, oh, there's my tissue box. (laughs) Like, oh, that's exactly as their house is. It's very good virtual technology. And then the architect goes, right, let's get rid of all the walls. And it goes And then they just see the house as it would be with no walls and nothing in it. And they're like, wow, it's massive. (laughs) And then the architect goes, right, now let's see my design. And then it just appears before their eyes, kind of walls um, are put in, windows appear, and the light floods in. And they're like, oh my goodness, it's amazing. I can't believe that's my house. They start to cry. And the architect's like, yes, I've got them. And, um, And they're like, this should be as it always was. Like, this is how my house should look always. I don't understand why it wasn't designed like this in the first place. And this is what we see in Zechariah 9. This prophet is speaking beyond his current situation, beyond the release of the captives of Babylon, 
beyond the restoration of the temple and into a future eschatological hope, this passage is about a cosmic restoration beyond human capability. And the exciting thing is, we get to join in. N.T. Wright says, he is claiming this world back for himself. He's not abandoned it. Heaven and earth are brought together at last with God's sovereign rule extending on earth as it is in heaven through the mission of Jesus climactically in his death and resurrection and then through the similarly shaped and spirit-driven mission of his followers. The question is, are we willing? Are we willing to be involved? Are we willing to join our king? Um, I was speaking with Jo Swinney a little while ago, and we were talking about the environmental crisis and her work with Arusha. And I was saying, it's just overwhelming, isn't it? Like, it's so big. I feel so overwhelmed by this and so um, unable to do anything about it. It feels so big. And her response was, what the important thing is, is that you care for your corner of creation. That's how you personally bring about change. And I think on a spiritual level, that is true for us too. What is your corner, as it were, of creation? Where are you ushering in the kingdom of heaven? What areas of your life are you praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? And we're called to do this in small ways, and some people are called to do this in big ways. I heard a story of a friend who worked in an open plan office, and he noticed that the atmosphere was pretty toxic, like there was a lot of bickering, a lot of backbiting. And so he prayed about it. And this is quite twee, forgive me for this, but he decided he had come in quite early one morning before everyone else got there and put a really nice box of chocolates on everyone's desk. And then he went out again, and then when it was time for work, he, all, he came in with everyone else, and they were like, oh, he bought me a box of chocolates, and no one owned up. And then he got to his desk, and he was like, oh, he bought me a box of chocolates. And he said for that whole day, I mean, it was just lasted a day, but for the whole day, everyone was nice to each other because they didn't want to be mean to the person that potentially gave them a box of chocolates. So as I said, that is quite tweet, isn't it? It's quite nice. My mum was uh, a woman who was a passionate intercessor. You intercessors are powerful, okay? I want to say that. And she was pretty much constantly praying. Um, she, would, she was a woman who would see stuff happen because of her persistent prayer. And she would often go around praying out loud um, in tongues, worshipping, praying out loud, singing in the supermarket. And as a teenager, I was mortified. <laughs> I was like, stop it. <laughs> so embarrassing. Um, but, you know, brilliant. Um, and I would say she was a woman who ushered in the kingdom of God deliberately, very, very intentionally, wherever she went. Um, as you know, I grew up in the Blackdown Hills. And... Um, all around that area, you may or may not know this, there's a really kind of pagan New Age culture. Um, and a lot of people are very overtly into witchcraft and um, the occult. Um, and I think that's something quite prevalent um, in some of the Southwest. And one day she told me she was just walking through this town, if you can call it a town, and um, she was walking along, as she always did, 
praying, worshipping, speaking in tongues. And um, this woman approached her, and she said, I haven't been able to come near you for years. I've seen you walking through this town for years, and every time I've seen you, I've had to literally walk to the other side of the street. And what happened, what transpired was, this was a woman who had been deeply entrenched in the occult. I don't know, I'm really sad to say, I can't remember the rest of the story, and I can't remember, and I'll never know now, I can't remember what happened in her life that meant she could actually come and speak to my mum. But I do know mum shared Jesus with her. So this is a reality we are living in. This is a spiritual reality we live in. It's not just about being nice people. I mean, it is, but it's more than that. It's a spiritual reality, and we are commissioned by Jesus to participate in the restoration of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. If we read a bit further to the end of Zechariah 9, it says in verse 16, the Lord their God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. Listen to this. They will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. See your king. Live under his rule and his reign, not the rulers of this earth. And join your king. Be participants in the restoration of his kingdom. Amen.